Here is Apocalypse Podcast. Hey, this is Apocalypse Podcast. I'm Jason Rode. I still feel great. How are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm wonderful. You did a marvelous job, and I want to say you've done a marvelous job with two of the harder words in the English language to put together back to back Apocalypse Podcast. That's a tough yeah, one. Yeah, I know. I've that, been tempted to say radio a bunch of times, but I don't go into it, so what the hell. That is true. It's, a, it's some impressive alliteration there. Yeah. Uh, you guys have no idea of the lifestyle that I'm living here. I got a copy of Peter Frampton's and the BG Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from our friend, sh- friend of the show, Annie Black. It's on my desk right now, and I have yet to sample it, but I probably will at any moment now, so... That's great, uh, man. You know, I honestly prefer the Beatles cover, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a DVD movie. It's a movie on DVD, probably with Blu-ray, mm. for all I know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't even looked at it. So, yeah. Them's the breaks, Shane. Them's the breaks. How's everybody doing? You know, Shane, uh, Jake and I went to a really fun baseball game last weekend, and you weren't here at all. Yeah, so. I know. I was, I was jealous of that. I would have loved to have gone to uh, a baseball game with you guys. It was my favorite thing to do when I lived in New York. Um, and you guys refused to video chat me in for the whole night. Very hurtful. Um, no, that's great. Good for you. I didn't do anything like that. I, let's see. I bought a house. How about that? There's something new for me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, having a baby. So I'm glad you guys can enjoy yourselves at your little baseball games. <laughs> we were in the Arctic nosebleed section while plutocrat Ryan here was living the dream life that all of us wants. So <laughs> thanks a lot, Shane. All right, serious question though. Do you got you didn't you didn't stay in the nosebleeds, did you? Yes, we did. Oh man, you gotta you gotta go to better seats. You pay for the nosebleed, <laughs> then you move up. That's I, yeah. I wrote a whole thing. I wrote a whole thing on Grantland for this. Look up. Um, I forget what it's called, but look it up. Look up like seat stealers. Uh, it's one of the first things I ever wrote, like in 2010 for them. I'm an yeah, expert. The, I really, in the, the course of my life, I became an expert at getting good seats. I, it's, a, it's a great idea in theory, but we had like eight people at the game. And so moving oh. up and, yeah, stealing eight seats is, is a whole lot trickier than, than you would imagine. Never mind. Um, Never mind. As, as known associates of Shane Ryan, every time I go to a major uh, baseball ballpark now, I'm under a list that maybe <laughs> not exists, but they pay close attention to me. I'm yeah. one of your known associates, and so I can't, I can't go anywhere really in sports now, which I guess I have you to thank for. So thanks a lot, Shane. You are welcome. No problem. I only counted about 20 ads in my visual space when I was up there with Jake. It was pretty mild by Major League Baseball, uh, baseball standards. I was actually impressed with their Puritan and, and pure game stature. Way to go, guys. Yeah, oh, yeah. But, if you ever want, uh, I was just going to say, Jake, if you ever want to feel superior, uh, superior to Europeans, just note that we do not have advertisements on our, on our jerseys in our professional sports. Uh, except that we do now because the NBA is instituting that this year and Major League Baseball is starting to, to institute that. And some NFL teams are putting it in their training camp uh, jerseys. So we're moving. Fake, there. fake news. <laughs> Big if true. Big if true. You know what else I love that Atlanta does all the time, which is amazing to me? They do that chop like about 20 times a game. Like, that's not, I thought it was like once a game. No, it's, it's like about once every 15 minutes or so. I was pretty astounded by that. Oh, yeah, the, the definitely not racist tomahawk chop. Not racist at all. <laughs> it's also, that's one reason to feel very inferior to Europeans is that anytime you go to like a European soccer match, they have about 15 different songs for every minute of the, uh, of the match. So, like, you know, that's a total of 90 times 15 songs for the whole thing. Americans have one thing, and they seize on it, and they repeat it ad nauseum <laughs> until everybody fucking hates it. Yeah, it's, it's like Fletch Fetishes on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's either that or whatever chant you can fit into three or four syllables. Yeah, exactly. Dun, 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 dun. Like, da, 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 da. Uh, yep. In Japan, going to a baseball game, it's like going to it's like going to a Victorian outing. Like there's p- people there in uniform. Everybody's really happy to be there. Like there are bands that get together to play in the stands. It really I felt like I was completely outclassed, like just out of my element at the Japanese baseball game. I felt like a dirty, just like a, a like a dirty lout being there because I was here with all my fanmanship from from the Texas Rangers, and here I was just yeah, they blew my mind. 
And that's when the you, same way. That's when you drink a beer at the game and go, yeah, anybody who's any good, we're going to buy them away for millions. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> I just class that joint right up. I, yeah. I mean, you laugh, but that's you basically just described like my 10 years in Boston dealing with those sports <laughs> fans. <laughs> hey, Tom. Tom Brady, you are terrific, Tom. <laughs> Have my baby, Tom. That's my imagination, my little skit about Boston sportsmanship. You're not that yeah, you, there was, off. There was way too little racism, though, in that, Jason. <laughs> That's true. If, if you want an accurate depiction of Boston sports fans. <laughs> yeah, you need, what, you, what you needed to do is you needed to compliment the scrappiness of Julian Edelman and then call one of their black players lazy, and then, then you would have the full spectrum there. Absolutely. What is it? I forget, like, if sports teams or some comedians have, like, a breakdown of this stuff. Like, if somebody's, like, a firecracker or a real professional, that's always, like, real soft bigotry all the way across. If they use words like that. Yeah, oh, he's yeah. real professional. He's scrappy. They describe, they describe white athletes in terms of work ethic, and they describe black athletes in terms of physical attributes. Is the basic, that's the basic breakdown. Yeah, sports. And, sport, oh, go ahead. Well, and that, and that's I mean that's why you didn't have a a black starting quarterback in the NFL until I think it was like 1988. I want to say it was Doug Williams for the for the Redskins, which ironically that the Redskins would employ the, you know, the first African American quarterback or the first the <laughs> yeah. first Super Bowl winning African American. I was going to say I think he's yeah. the first to win a Super Bowl. If no. I yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the psychotic Bronco fan in my head corrected me because it was actually the Denver Broncos who employed the first the first ever African American quarterback, yeah. but he wasn't any good. It's, it's like if your it's like if your racist drunk uncle was like the the academic who was in charge of things. That's like the sensibility that obtains in the NFL and pretty much everywhere else. It really is like the last bastion of Victorian like phrenology and racial science is sports, professional sports, sports writers, and the people who run the teams. Oh yeah, there's a uh, Drew McGarry writes these excellent why your team sucks uh, pre NFL season recaps for like all thirty teams or thirty two or whatever there are. And the Giants won. Um, uh, the Mara, you know, Rooney, Rooney Mara's grandfather, as I'll describe him, uh, who, is the, who is the owner of the New York Giants. He, like, you know, he talked about, you know, they have a, a shitty backup quarterback, basically, after Eli Manning. And they did not, or one of, you know, all the teams that didn't go after Colin Kaepernick. And they asked him about it. And he, I think it's Wellington Mara is his name, which is such yeah. a douchebag name. Um, and he said, uh, yeah, he's basically like, I've never gotten more letters about anything in my life. It would just be wrong for our fans. And, like, meanwhile, there's at least, like, three convicted, like, uh, wife beaters on the team. It's just, it's like the worst kind of hypocrisy uh, ever. I, I actually hate the fucking NFL. I, I watched the playoffs <laughs> and the Super Bowl, but I despise, like, the league as a whole. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel the same way, but the problem is because, like, I grew up in a in a city where, like, you basically have a gun to your head if you're not a Broncos fan 24-7, so it's, like, I just have all of the programming inside of me, and I know that, like, my conscious self is rejecting all of that NFL programming, <laughs> but, like the, like, the instincts and the tribalism and all of that stuff just overrules it, so, like, you know, even though I'm with you, Shane, I hate the NFL, I've spent an inordinate amount of time reading up on the NFL season, prepping for my fantasy draft prepping for gambling just ugh, <laughs> well, i hate myself well don't don't yeah but don't ever let it be said that i'm not a hypocrite because i will from noon to about midnight on saturdays watch college football which is pretty much equally problematic maybe like slightly less so but it's still terrible um, and i would never like you'd have to like rip my throat out before i would <laughs> stop watching it <laughs> it's weird because again this is apocalypse radio um you're home for all things political but politics, sports is like politics. It's like, I don't watch sports, but you can use sports to talk about anything. Like, it, it serves any purpose, any rhetoric you have about anything. It really is ideal. I could talk about sports for all day, and I don't even like sports. Isn't that weird how that works? <laughs> it it's is. It's the like, Game of Thrones of real life. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. It is the Game of Thrones of real life. God, isn't that... Like, our grandparents would sit around in bars, and, like, talking about mantle was, like, a great way to, like, get men back then who were taciturn as hell to open up about stuff now that's gone and you could be like whoa what about joffrey on game of thrones that's like the entry point to talking to your fellow man now <laughs> that's what shit. that's what taciturn old men light up for <laughs> now is joffrey baratheon <laughs> the hound yeah he's got some business up there in king's landing that's right grandpa good times amazing <laughs> uh so, yeah, um, speaking of Game of Thrones, did you guys watch Game of Thrones at all on Sunday? I sit around with a bunch of people. We watched GOT. It was a lot of fun. Um, big times, big if true. Just a, a lot, just a humdinger of an episode. 
Yeah, I did watch it, as you know, Jason. I'm the, I know. I yes, I know you. The did. house reviewer. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I thought it was a good episode. I, it was a good end to a bad season, is how I thought of it. Jake, do you even watch that show or no? And I don't watch Game of Thrones, so whenever these conversations <laughs> take place, I just sit there and basically like I basically have had the entire series spoiled for me. So like even even though I want to go and watch it, I know that I like I know half of it at this point. So basically, I just watch everything through you guys. The, nice. the, way this, the way this conversation was supposed to work is that I know Jake doesn't watch this show and Shane watches it as part of his job. I was hoping we could very lightly segue into it, but now that cover's been blown, so we have to pretend that we're not either A, all degenerates of this show, or B, in one case, not interested at all. So we're back to square one here yet again. Thanks, boys. We should do a podcast, a Game of Thrones podcast, me and you, Jake, one person who knows it extremely well <laughs> and one who doesn't, and... It'll just be me getting frustrated with you and you being like, why are we talking about this? this sucks. Damn it. <laughs> um, so that's, that's pretty much what's been happening in our world. Uh, there's been a lot happening in the actual world um, of slightly more import than uh, the wall coming down. Spoiler. Uh, right now in Houston, Harvey is just ransacking the entire metropolitan area. It's brutal to watch. And it's been pretty bad. I think I read something like, I don't know, like 30 inches or something. It's something insane, the downpour coming over everybody. It's just it's terrible to watch. Um, guys, I don't know if you can even do a hot take about this, but what are we taking away from this thus far? I'm not sure how to react to it, to be honest. Well, yeah, my hot takes are that global warming is real and terrible. Uh, and also that Donald Trump, you know, just... It, continues to embarrass himself uh those are the broad strokes i'm sure we'll get into the specifics uh as we go but essentially those are my my two big things and also you know your heart goes out to um everybody in houston and and the gulf coast area who are just getting annihilated yeah yeah i I mean you know chris hayes i think put it best that right now it's so it's so early in this process that it's pretty much impossible for any anyone to get their their heads around kind of the scope of of the damage right now and, I mean, it's hard to see how this d- isn't at least another repeat of Katrina. Yeah. I'm, if, there is any, if there is any tie-in back to Game of Thrones again, it's the weird way in which all the pundits who talk about this shit talk about what a great opportunity this will be for Trump. Like, I think it was Glenn Thrush, who I wrote, I wrote a piece about, talking about, it was a, he used the phrase, a rare opportunity. Like, it's a rare for Trump to prove himself. It's like a D&D encounter or something. <laughs> like, what the shit is that about? I can't, but, like, it's just so strange because, like, every single moment is a time where, like, Trump can prove himself. Trump can prove himself. And it's total bullshit. Like, the, the best thing that Trump can hope for is that the response he has will be mildly competent. He'll fuck up nothing major, and it won't be Katrina all over again. Um, hopefully, and hopefully for the people, it'll be competent, but I just, I don't know, like... It, the, the two reactions I have are like, Trump will find a way to fuck this up, as he does with everything, number one. And number two, it will be used as horse race bullshit by the yeah. pundit class. Yeah, well, that's right. You, go ahead, Jake. I was going to say, just, just to put a cherry on the Glenn Thrush th- Sunday, although I think that we're going to keep, keep pounding on the New York Times here. <laughs> but, you know, he tweeted out his, his story this morning, and he, Glenn, Glenn Thrush said, quote, Trump could use Harvey to reclaim the moral high ground. His aides and outsiders think he probably won't. So basically what happened was the New York Times talked to a bunch of Trump folks, said, hey, is this going to change things? They said, ha ha, no. And they printed something being like, well, maybe, you know, we don't, we don't know yet. And it's, you know, the fact that you have his own advisors laughing the New York Times out of the room and they still print this bullshit just tells you everything about the agenda of the New York Times that you need to know. <laughs> yeah, and, and it does. And it's like, you know, imagine having the mindset that – Okay, you're a reporter like Glenn Thrush. Imagine having the mindset that a a big tragedy occurs, and the first thing you think is, oh, Trump could really use this to his advantage. And not even, like, saying, like, Trump is cynically going to, you know, make a big appearance in Texas and, uh, you know, try to make it, like, this visual kind of, like, uh, conquering hero or rescue warrior type deal. No, he legitimately thinks that, like, it's totally fine for Trump to prove his leadership by leading us through this, you know, the hurricane and its after effects – like, what kind of fucking screwed up mindset is that? And it's really telling that all of the ogres in Trump's office that talked to this guy were like, no, that's even too crass for us. Like, <laughs> like that, that's, that's the state of the New York Times right now. I mean, Glenn Thrush is like, he should be so ashamed of himself. And it, it just runs. Like, Maggie Haberman is a huge one for it. We've seen it over and over. I was joking with you guys today on Gchat, like, 
a great article for Pace would be like, you know, here are the 25 times that Trump became president this year. Because um, anytime something awful happens, even if it's Trump himself doing it, like these people think that like, oh, you know what else would be a great opportunity for Trump to become president? If he did it, like okayed some dumb fuck like special ops force in Yemen that gets a bunch of people killed and then can make a speech about it. Yeah. Like, that's where their brains are at. It's so fucking baffling. It's re- it really is unique. I think there's a kind of brainworms where you just see this all this stuff, whatever happens outside of the Beltway, it's fodder for shit. Because that's the way it happens in TV, right? Like on West Wing, Bartlett has to like talk to a clipper ship. It's a great episode. He has to talk to a clipper ship, and it becomes this moment where he gets to prove himself, right? None of this stuff is real outside of the Beltway. It's all a chance for these guys to redeem themselves, which would be fucked up even if it were Obama, but because it's Trump. Like, the narrative is that much grander if he comes back around and suddenly becomes this great man. I think really what happened is, like, in America, journalism used to be really, like, ribald and funny and filled with, like, charming alcoholics. And, like, something really changed whenever journalism became professional. I don't know what exactly that was. But at some point, this neutral gamesmanship took over where it became... I guess the protocol to where like there was no ideological uh, skin in the game and what you had to do no matter what the occasion was to look at stuff well like oh yes this could push up his Q points by five meters and like there was a time yeah. probably when that was really innovative and like sort of uh, like a really neutral scientific way to see this stuff but it's bullshit like it's not objective it's not rational it buys into the narrative of power where there's no truth just positioning and what happens is it becomes a kind of like decadence is what happens, where you get guys like Saliza who's talking about this shit like it's a horse race all the time. And if you start thinking that way, then all this stuff does become just like, it's a chance to prove your mettle. It's all a horse race. Like, it's it's really fucked up. Right. I mean... Oh, uh, yeah. Totally. It's, you know, the journalism has become gossip, basically, is that, is that you have you have these reporters who, you know, I've, I've written a lot about this in our, in you know, Pace Former Media section, and how it's so blatantly obvious how, how many reporters effectively just retweet their sources as opposed to, to vetting them, and so you just print shit that you're told, you don't really think about it otherwise, and so that's the mindset that you get into, and so every single time we have one of these, you know, is this the Trump pivot articles, what that does is it reveals how woefully ill-equipped so much of the mainstream media is to actually cover like real news and real policy because they're so embedded in the horse race that that is literally the only way that they can conceive of the world like it unless they're looking yes at, yes. at the world through a horse race lens they don't recognize it it's that like it's just that bad it's true the, and i think the epitome and, and like the highest form of this was when trump was in arizona the other day Basically, like, telling his people to go kill journalists. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, exagger- I'm exaggerating, but that's essentially the tone off. of it. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm not too far off. And, Ma- and Maggie Haberman was, like, forceful, powerful. You know, like, just, like, <laughs> basically just, like, licking his shoes. And it's like, yeah, Jake, you're right. And Jason, you too. Like, this is the only um, framework for which they have for viewing the world. And it's like, it, it makes you look at them. Like, I see that smiling picture of, of Haberman or, like, Glenn Thrush with his fedora on. And you're like, these people are fucking brain dead. Like, they're actually brain dead and don't have an understanding of how they are contributing to fascism, essentially. It's it's awful. We have to make a pact right here and now that as the members of Paste Politics, if one of us is, for whatever reason, if one of us gets assassinated, the other two can't write about it in, like, moral outrage terms or be sad, we have to cover it like a a horse race. It's like... (laughs) What will the result be now that Pace staffer such and such has been removed from the game? Nobody's yeah. clear. We have to make that back. If we yeah. cover, it's like Jason Rowe died. Now, how is Shane Ryan going to deal with uh, you know reactive analysis pieces to stupid New York Times articles? <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's the spirit exactly I want. If I yeah. go, yeah. when I go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. J- Jacob Weinlein is gone. That's one less voice at Coors Field to cheer on the Rockies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's bad. Uh, Maggie Haberman is like my new ultra villain. I really starting when well, I mean starting a long time ago. But the the Arizona tweet was followed quickly by the um, you guys saw her tweet about Jane Sanders and uh, yeah. and uh, and Sheriff Joe asshole or whatever is our bio. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah had, she, so, had she printed that in the New York Times, she might have gotten sued. But because it's a tweet, she she might be safe. But yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, totally. Yeah, they would be like, she may have had to have been fired if she said it in the New York Times. But again, 
there's no such thing as an apology or even a mild retraction from these people. But for people who don't know what happens, just really quick, it was, uh, you know, Jane Sanders uh, at one point in the primary campaign in March of 2016, while Bernie was doing a speech in Phoenix or somewhere, she went and visited the tent cities that Sheriff Joe Arpaio has where he likes to allow his prisoners to molest each other and die of heat exhaustion. Um, and she basically did it to bring attention to the, uh, the heinous conditions there. And so remind me exactly what happened, but basically ha- Haberman tweeted out that, uh, hold on, I'm finding the exact tweet right they now. They were on a platform together. That's what she said. They're on a platform together. They appeared together on the same platform. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So Bernie, yeah, so Bernie tweeted, after, after the pardon of Arpaio, Bernie tweeted, by pardoning Sheriff Arpaio, President Trump has once again made clear where he stands on the side of racism and discrimination. And Haberman quote tweeted that and wrote, worth recalling that Jane Sanders appeared with Arpaio once and toured his tent jail, which is like the tour, quote unquote, was when Arpaio came over to her when she was protesting and like was like, you want to come take a look? And she, she went and took a look. So it was not like she is best friends with this guy. Um, the statement she released after that visit was just like in no uncertain terms condemning everything that Sheriff Arpaio stood for. And then Haberman is here, I can only think on purpose, maliciously tailoring her language to make it look like Jane Sanders is like best buddies with Arpaio and that Bernie's a hypocrite for criticizing him. And it's equally appalling or even more appalling when you remember that in the Podesta leaks where it came out that certain journalists were basically actively colluding with the Clinton (laughs) campaign. Maggie Haberman was one of them. She was at Politico at the time. Uh, She's at the New York Times now and she was one of them. And so you look at this and go... How the fuck? Like Trump is like basically saying all media are dishonest, blah, blah, blah. You see something like this and you're like, well, how do I argue with him? <laughs> really? This is, the, this is the thing with Trump that is so aggravating, right? Because like we all know Trump's a monster, right? But like Trump is not 100% wrong when he says, when he makes fun of the media. Like that's the thing that's so fucked up about this. Yep. Just like when he's not wrong when he says NAFTA is a bad thing, right? It's, oh, like yeah. how, it's like how Sauron had a point about some things like people having magic rings is really bad like it's (laughs) that's the thing like there really is there really is a problem with the media in this country and Haberman's one of them Chapo was speculating that one of the reasons why Haberman did this is because she gets sources from the White House high-placed White House sources one of which might be Trump himself just like he did back in the 80s when he used to call up people like the New York Post and be like "Uh, this is John Smith I want to say Trump's a great guy real fun to work with yeah. yeah. Well, that, but, well there, no, there was an article by Haberman earlier, and there was a great tweet from it, and it had a source in the middle of the article, and there was a paragraph of the source talking, and it was like, I'm telling you, seriously, this is the best thing ever, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, like, and there was a tweet, they, someone quote tweeted, and it was like, when you try to be an anonymous source, but nobody on planet Earth <laughs> talks the way you do. <laughs> and, and yeah, so, so for sure, one of her sources is Trump, and she always, you know, she's always the one that goes and does the conversations with him and stuff. Yeah, and so it's utterly compromising, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have the the approval rating of the media in this country is somewhere down near Congress's, and so, you know, you have yeah. you have the the mainstream media has been fighting this, you know, they're they're liberal hacks, and so they think that's that's the narrative that they're battling against, but that's only you know a subsect of the right, and they you know the media is is liberal, but it's not this you know nefarious bias and some you know globalist conspiracy it's just that most people who work in the media tend to be liberal so that's where their heads go but you know the if that were solely the issue you wouldn't have us on the left raging against them either like they're somehow the mainstream media in this company manages to piss off damn near every single person on every single side so like on on some <laughs> on some level you do kind of have to respect that game even if, like, <laughs> fuck, man. Like, I, I said this earlier today on Twitter that, you know, Trump was way off base when he said that the media are our enemies, but they sure as hell aren't our allies. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Yeah. I think it's like any public utility. Like, plumbers aren't involved in the politics game, but it's like, you know, cops are kind of this way, too. Uh, it's weird because, like, if you're close to power at all and you have a relationship with power, then you're going to be complicit. And the media, for whatever reason, well, for a variety of reasons, are really complicit with power, Right. It's not, it's not necessarily liberal power, though certainly there's a liberal narrative that, that centrists buy into, but it's the game of where like, um, you're unusually close to sources of influence and power, and they need to be close to you, too. Like, so as much as celebrities or politicians, especially like Trump, rag on the press, they really don't mean it. 
because they need them to survive. Like, Trump can talk the shit he wants to about the press, but he's a creature of the press. Like, that's why you can never take these guys seriously. And only in the cases where, like, you're, you're Daniel Day-Lewis and you go hide in a mountain or something. That's the only time I can take <laughs> this stuff seriously. Because anybody who's famous is a creature and dependent on the press. It's like raging on your mom and dad. You know, it's you can't really take it seriously. No, it's in true. Trump's case, it's true. It's like it's like ultra extreme terrorists. They that always you know will be terrorists. They need an enemy. Like the existence of the enemy is necessary for them. Like when there was the peace accord in, in Northern Ireland or when Ireland got its independence, there are still like on both sides. Like let's say after 1998, after the Good Friday Agreement, there are still like okay, so Sinn Fein was the political force. Now we've got it. We've got a lasting peace for a little while anyway. There are splinter sections of terrorists who go off and keep fighting because there are the people who will always want to be terrorists. And I feel like Trump and the media have that relationship where Trump is like he needs always to be in opposition to the media. It's, it's his source of strength. Without them, he would be nothing. Like, who would he be at that point? He'd have nobody to like to 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 yell and scream at. So he absolutely requires them for his continued existence. Yeah, it's, you know, like how with Batman, you know, we all have to be the Joker at some point. You know, freak out mom, that that kind of thing. You know, they create each other. And anyway, that <laughs> the thing with Trump is like, even if you don't like him, and I certainly don't like him, and I think I speak for everybody here, we're like, we don't like Trump, but you have to write about him if you're in the media. It sucks that that's the case, but even when you could see what was going on, you still have to write about him. Like that was you could the, the last time you could go without writing, uh, you could go uh, not writing about Trump was before he started racking up points. Right. And then it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy because you had to write about him because it was so crazy, even when he wasn't taken seriously. And then as he became as he started getting taken seriously, you had to write about him. And Trump manipulates and understands the media like nobody who has ever been born. So like there's there's just no way out. Like the media has to write about Trump, um, especially now that he's president. Um, Trump needs the media to keep doing what he does. So I don't know how we get out of that hole, you know, unless like he just go becomes a monk and that's not going to happen. And the press isn't <laughs> going to stop writing about Trump either. Now that he now that he has power, we can't. So I don't know how you ever get out of this marriage. It doesn't seem like there's a way out anytime soon. Yeah. Although Trump do, Trump does find a way out of his marriages, though. So. <laughs> yeah. Zing, zing a ding ding. Um, ah, yeah. Love speaking it. of speaking of ways out, um, again, all our thoughts and wishes go to Houston. Um, there's uh, a man who has escaped the reach of Trump, speaking of leaving Trump. You know, our God, I can't believe he's gone, but like, I thought he would stick around. Gorka has left. Kushner remains. Gorka! Gorka! <laughs> James Gorka. Adomian's Gorka is the single greatest piece of political comedy to come out of this year. <laughs> I agree. It's so good. What makes Gorka, and, and again, Chapo has the best commentary on this ever, but the thing with Gorka that is really worth talking about is Gorka was sort of like the last true hardcore globalist. Um, not globalist, I'm sorry, nationalist. The true blue nationalist, non-heritage foundation, lanyard dipshit inside the administration. Like, he was such an academic fraud that he couldn't get a security clearance when he was at the Trump administration. So, like, his job essentially is to do what Trump loves best, which is go and defend Trump on the nightly news magazines. Like, that's what he's done. That's what he did. But he's out now. He got fired. He made it look like a resignation. He wrote an insane letter um, that, like, you should read and cackle because that's what he was doing when he wrote it. <laughs> But then that now he's out, like Bannon and all the rest of these guys. And now I guess Miller is still there. And there's one more, too. I forget who the other guy is who's still left. But essentially, that's it. Like, Gorka's fallen. Miller will go eventually. And then, God, who's next? What do you guys think about this? Oh, yeah. It's amazing that, that you're totally right. The nationalists are gone. Anything representing, you know, what Trump campaigned upon is gone. Not just with these people gone, but with everything he's done since the people he's report uh, he's promoted in the absence of Bannon and Gorka and those guys and yeah I mean it, it's look anyone who ever believed this stuff was getting sold a bill of goods that you know that Trump would actually fulfill any of the populist promises that he campaigned on but you'd think maybe he'd last a little longer before firing everybody who represented what people <laughs> voted for I mean like you said it's just Stephen Miller who nobody gives a shit about. And, you know, I, I would argue Stephen Miller is probably going to be on the way out, too. He's completely isolated uh, in that White House now. Um, and so, yeah, it's at this point, like, I thought the funniest news story was that 
they warn the White House guards not to let Gorka in. Like, it's that bad. <laughs> it's that bad that they have to, like, have his picture up and be like, do not let this man anywhere near the White House. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's just another example of the hypocrisy. But the big thing, though, is we've all seen it doesn't really matter. I mean, you, you call Trump out on his hypocrisy. You prove it over and over that he's full of shit, that he's not draining the swamp, etc. It doesn't seem to matter to a certain amount of people. But as Jake pointed out to me today, there is evidence that there's a slow trickle of support going away from him uh and so you know latest polls don't look good for him um but i've i've grown wary of of ever counting trump out really yeah i think uh i think there's a lot to be said along that line where when you talk about trump there's a passage in the prince where machiavelli says all unarmed prophets have come to grief which is the idea you come into town with a revelation and That'll last for a while, but if you don't have some force behind it or an organization, uh, you will not last long. There's an idea in American history, like there could be a Mr. Smith who will go to Washington and fix everything, the man on horseback. But the reason, there's a lot of reasons why that isn't true, but one of the big ones is like politics, like every other social movement, is really a collection of people. Just like one soldier can't bring victory in a war, one person alone can't change this stuff. Even the most transformative people in our history, people like, say, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, come to power on a crest of a wave they've been building since the 10s and the 20s. And one of the problems with Trump is that Trump could get in there because of his fame and because of unique circumstances and his money. But Trump comes in, and even with, um, even with this Trump victory, even if they've had time to prepare, I don't know if they could have done it, because uh, as a lot of people pointed out, when he came in, there weren't really any nationalist think tanks. Like, essentially, you have heritage people. And you have, you know, uh, uh, Economic Freedom Foundation and all that stuff. Uh, it's essentially you've got a structure there that is built by conservatives and like the Koch brothers and has been around for years and years. So all these guys, you know, separated as passionate and as marginalized as they were, they really did not have the numbers or the organization to come in and build this framework that they wanted to, quite apart from all the problems you would have, you know, going against the conservative state, NATSEC and liberals. Um, it was going to be hard anyway, and then without, without a unified front, without their own staffers, without their own structure, they were blowing in the wind. It's, and the left has the same problem, and we don't really have a setup yet like everybody else does, like neoliberals do. But especially with these guys who had been super marginalized um, and didn't expect to win power at all. Uh, you know, Sanders has had this our revolution system he's set up since then, which is going to be very useful hopefully in the years to come because there's a pool you can draw from. Trump had no pool. It was just like his courtiers and his flunkies. And those people have been picked off one by one by the powers that be since they got into office. Well, and also, you know, the, you're talking about kind of the, the infrastructure for this. And, you, I mean, you're right. There's no infrastructure in the White House. If you look like this, this nationalist, uh, you know, I guess, movement that they're trying to build is really all built through the Mercers. And so, you know, the, the Kochs are like the, you know, the neoliberal nationalists. And now the Mercers are the reactionary nationalists on the right. And it's, I mean, it's weird. It's this, it's this developing ecosystem that you're seeing. And it's basically like you have these guys who are fleeing the White House. And they're, at least in theory, it seems like they're getting stronger. Uh, you know, the, you know but as soon as Bannon left the White House, he met with the Mercers and probably got, you know, some sort of a blank check. I'm sure that Gorka's on the, on the same thing. And so you have this, you know, this outside group that's basically coordinating better than the, the group that's supposed to be coordinating all of this. Yeah, and I, I just want to register uh, my incredulity and how offensive I think it is that you say the far right doesn't have a think tank when Breitbart.com uh, exists. <laughs> I forgot about intellectual firepower. You're right. Yeah, no, but yeah, but it's true. And, and they'll, I mean, you know, in the Bannon book we read, there was the whole thing where you definitely wouldn't call us a think tank, but he set up that whole like institute to attack Hillary Clinton. Uh, in, in, in Florida, and it was like highly effective. So, you know, they're they're not going to like you know have great scientific research because essentially it's just like nationalism and racism. But what they are going to have is some very effective and powerful media machines that can ruin people's reputations. Um, not that you know, not that Hillary Clinton needed much help because she's essentially <laughs> a corrupt person. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like while while the left you talked about like there's our revolution and Matt Bruning is kind of like he's sort of building his own like left-wing think tank, a progressive think tank. That stuff is happening with actual policy. Their answer to that is going to be how to control, uh, how to control a media narrative, basically. 
Well, it's okay, it's so that it's that, and I would argue that all of these militias, uh, you know, that's to me that's what what's scary is if they were able to organize because what they, there's like 200, 300 armed militias across the entire country uh, that we or that we know of, um, and they're all you know they're all on board with this with this nationalist narrative, and so I, for me the the ultimate fear is them figuring out a way to mobilize those. Yeah. Well, yeah, and when you look at Charlottesville, where there's like a guy shooting a gun and nobody stops him. I mean, supposedly because they didn't see him. But not only that, I mean, even in a simpler way, uh, the police are not interfering in certain of these conflicts because there's too many people with guns. And you know, you go, how long? You know, what's what's the divide between that between like their supposedly sensible non-interference versus not being able to control uh, an armed militia movement? and that, I mean, nothing's more frightening than that. I mean, that, that's like, like, are we going to turn into Cambodia here or what? Like, it's, it's actually pretty terrible. I think, much as I would like to say that there couldn't be a nationalist government, uh, other countries have had nationalist governments, um, it can be done. So what happened with Trump? Well, I think one of the big things is, again, speed is their enemy. Even if they'd been led by a competent person, even if Trump had been competent and Bannon hadn't been, you know, a dying man and a ball hog, who didn't think he would ever be in power. Um, e- even if they'd had, even if they'd had time, they didn't really have that much time to put it together. Like again, most of these movements coalesce over a decade or so. You know, they build up slowly. Um, Pearlstein's before the storm is actually it's the struggle of essentially how this conservative movement put itself together over about 15 years. Like they started from the ground up. They nominated small office holders. They built from there. They had Goldwater. They built their own funding. They had their own think tanks. And so when Reagan finally came into power, they had this structure set up so where they could provide the, the firepower. So what do you need to do that? Well, you need a stable hub, which Trump is not. So that's strike one. But you also uh, need all these things that movements have. You need a screening apparatus so you can vet people who get in there to make sure they share your ideas. You need part of the organization. This is usually what think tanks do. You need a part of an organization that can provide ideas and provide the pretense of scholarship in a lot of times. You need dedicated fundraising, um, which is a network, probably the most important part. You need a media team that is savvy and not done what, not like, uh, not basically up to Trump's dictates where it gets picked out of a hat and whoever he likes gets to stay. Uh, And you need liaisons between all the structures of power. Um, If Trump had been canny and not fired people on a whim, then maybe he could have put this together before the election, but that seems so doubtful to me because all this stuff has to be structured. The same things that put Trump to power, the fact that there was no foundation and no settled team of interest he was serving, also made him vulnerable when he wanted to start up his own brand of politics, which is why the globalists have fallen, among many reasons, but that's the main one. They just don't have the institutional firepower. That's the big thing. That's why they won't be organized. Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, <laughs> I really yeah. have nothing to add. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you. Yeah, you you win. You win this round. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, of course Charlottesville. I mean, God, we saw what happened in Berkeley, right? After what was your read on that, guys? Uh, I I'll admit I did not see too much. Was that the the Antifa uh, where the Antifa protesters attacked a was it a journalist? I can't. I I haven't been able to sort through the noise of that yet. I'll be honest. So- so they claimed. I I reasoned it out their I reasoned it out their veracity for obvious reasons. Um, the Antifa that I've seen tend not to be especially violent people. Uh, from what I understand, it was more business with the cops. Um, it was clear there was going to be a conflict that was going to happen. The cops stepped back at some point. There was some pushing and shoving, and then fights started breaking out. That's generally what I gained. What I got from it. I don't know the entire story yet either. Yeah, you know, there, there's a real question right now in all these things. And Berkeley was the latest of: Is Antifa a, a violent organization that is actively hurting the left and stimulating growth in the Nazi right wing, or uh, is it the media? Is the media reporting these things in such a biased way that they're ignoring the thousands of people who protested peacefully in Berkeley? And the fact that, you know, Antifa is, you know, essentially they haven't really had any moments of huge, like, gory violence yet. Whereas we've seen it, Jesus, we've seen it over and over again on the right. So is there this false equivalency, um, you know, that a guy like Donald Trump would love? You know, the, the idea of the, oh, the alt-left is just as bad as the, as the alt-right. There's violence on both sides. Um, and, you know, the answer... I think the answer for sure in the latter case is yes, of course the media is doing that. That's what they do. Uh, and they want to, you know, they want to 
they have a fetish for promoting official narratives, and that's one of them that the Republicans are putting out, is that these Antifa guys are, are terrible, and it, it diminishes what the alt-right does. So the media is buying into that to some extent. But then there is a part of me that does wonder, uh, and it's almost like scary to put this out on Twitter, because it seems like most of leftist Twitter, who I'm in lockstep with, it, it seems like the rest of the time, are very much angry at anybody who questions um, Antifa's tactics. And, uh, but I don't know. I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of smart people who are looking at the history of fascist movements and saying that nonviolent protest is the best and that this only leads to more conflict and, and makes things easier, basically, for, for the right wing to recruit and for Nazi organizations to recruit. Um, I don't have an answer. I think it's a really, really tough question. I think it might be one of the hardest questions on the left right now. And I go back and forth. I said on Twitter the other day, it seems like I have a new opinion in my head every five minutes. And, and I don't get it. I, you know, I don't know because sometimes it's like these people are really useful and it's good for these Nazis to be scared. That's a positive thing. Other times it is, are, are we just going to feed their sense of grievance and their sense of being, um, having no place in this country, which obviously would only fuel the violence that they, that they like to uh, propagate. I feel yeah. like this is a, a go-ahead check. I say it's such a narrow conversation that we're that we're having too. We're basically, you know, we're thinking we can either have a movement with violence or without violence, and those are the only two options. Whereas, you know, if you look at every historical social movement ever, there has always been some semblance of violence, whether it's chosen or not. You know, it's a lot more complex than just saying, "Oh, should we punch Nazis or should we not punch not punch Nazis?" Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's it's strange that. <laughs> It's strange to me that we're talking about this. I think the reticence for a lot of people in talking about this is because we know this is a trick of the right in a lot of cases. Like, they've been doing this to BLM, uh, to Black Lives Matter since its inception. They've, every time Black Lives Matter has a protest or anything, they immediately get hit by the right-wing media um, as being violent, which they're not. Um, sometimes there are a few violent individuals who accompany... BLM are, are in the background, but like that's so rarely the case. It's not a violent group. It eschews um, violence as a tactic in politics, and we see how often this happens, right? We and it it plays into racist narratives that people who are anti-BLM already feel about Black Lives. So, like everybody's skeptical of this, as they have the right to be. I think it's safe to say that everybody here detests political violence. It shouldn't be a part of our conversation. But the thing that is frustrating is that the media doesn't really ever talk about right violence they do when they're forced to but anytime you know a, a nutcase shoots down like a bernie supporter or somebody guns down you know some white supremacist guns down a church is treated as a separate uh, just a separate happenstance right it's never linked to any bigger pattern or if it is it's never tied together in this large narrative and that's really frustrating so for that to happen to where you have antifa maybe some people who were violent shouldn't have been get pulled together as antifa when there's a very clearly like vocally want to be violent core of people doing this stuff um, on the right, it's just frustrating. It's like nobody wants violence, but to even talk about it, it seems like you have to engage in right-wing bad faith and right. centrist media bad faith. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think and I think to Jake's point, too, I think, I mean, that thing you talked about where you have mostly nonviolent protests with a sprinkling of violence here and there, that's what we have now. Uh, and again, yeah, and, and Jason, I think you nailed it of like, this is why it pisses me off. Like, I sent a tweet the other day that was like, you know, Antifa, Antifa does more, might do more harm than good or something like that. And then it's like, crap, yeah, you do feel like you've been duped by the right wing into buying their media narrative. And it's like, no, all they're doing is chasing Nazis away. Yeah, like if a Nazi falls when he's being chased away, they'll kick him, like they'll punch him. But these guys are fucking maniacs who would kill us all if they had power. Like, is that really the worst thing that could happen is that they get punched and kicked uh, and that they're in fear? Um, when, you know, when they demonstrate in public like this and it's like, no, you know, maybe, maybe they should be in fear. Maybe they should get hurt. And then you well, go back, then, to, then you go back and think, oh, maybe that's not right. And it goes on and on. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, to like, to further your point of wondering whether or not they should get hurt, there does seem need, there does, it does seem like there needs to be some sort of a, a counterweight to what Trump is doing because, you know, with the Arpaio pardon and his crazy ass speech and, you know, in Phoenix, he's emboldening that type of ideology every single day. And so if there isn't a check on it, you know, the logically, eventually that's, you know, they're going to get enough power to the point where it becomes a real problem. And then at that point, and I, and I, you know, violence is inevitable. 
And I think and I think that's true. And I think that's the thing now is like maybe it's better not to even think about the answer to these questions and just realize that opposition in all its forms is a positive thing right now. Like we're in a serious enough instance that, you know, I mean, obviously this stops at a certain point at mass murder or anything like that. But at the moment when they show their heads in public, this is the time for opposition and why split hairs on, on what form it takes. Yeah, I, I had I had a line when I when I would do sales that I think applies applies to this where it's it's spend a penny today so you don't have to spend a dollar tomorrow because you know there's there's so many things in life and just kind of the way that capitalism is structured is that it's it's better to address something now than it is you know later because the problem festers and that's that's basically what it is with you know with all of these Nazis and so it's like we can have Antifa you know come and and be violent and kind of put them you know push them back into their homes. Or if there is no count, you know, counterweight there, these guys are just going to keep getting emboldened. And, you know, who knows? Look at, you know, Charlottesville could just be the beginning. And I don't I don't know about you guys. I just don't have uh, faith in the police to, to stop them. I mean, they're, you know, with the increase now, Trump is going to militarize the police more. I, I am starting to buy into this Twitter narrative that I resisted for a long time, that the police are essentially transforming into a right wing force. And. You know, I know I'm way late in the game in this, and it's not, you know, original at all what I'm saying, but more and more it seems like that. Like, how many instances are there where they'll go apeshit beating the hell out of an Antifa guy or, or anyone on the left who's just doing any mild protest, and then crazy things happen on the right and nobody lifts a finger? I mean, how many times does it have to happen? Yeah. Yeah, I, I read I, – I remember I read an interview with a, a former police officer um, just – at a. The interview, I think it, I can't remember where it was, uh, but it was basically just trying to drill down onto, you know, why, why do police kill so many unarmed black men? Um, and the, the police officer had a quote that's really stuck with me where he said that 15% of all police officers are always going to do the right thing in any given situation, regardless of what's going on. 15% are always going to do the bat, the worst thing in any situation. And then the other 70%, it depends on which 15% they're hanging with as to, you know, what they're going to do. Yeah, right. no, that makes that makes total sense. That makes total sense. And I think I think people uh, neglect the influence of fear, too, in the decisions that people make. And uh, fear, you know, fear always stems from the unfamiliar. And that might be another reason why a largely white police force tends to uh, skew toward protecting <laughs> protecting white interests and and going the opposite way when it's when it's dealing with, you know, the other. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a lot to be said for the notion of like, well, you know, so much of this is in the moment of in the moment of Trump, um, things which loom large may not seem like a lot in the future. For example, it was about a week ago, uh, actually, okay, not a week ago, maybe uh, 19 days ago, we were wondering about the new uh, North Korean nuclear holocaust, right? On I think it was April, August 10th, and now it's August 29th. Japan just fired a missile. I mean, sorry, North Korea just fired a missile over Japan, and we're kind of back onto this now. So I also have the feeling, again, and we've talked about this a lot, about the weird anthology of living in the time of Trump. Um, a lot of this has to do with the way that Trump has changed the environment, to where, like, everything in the moment that it happens seems like the most important thing that can ever be. Like, Trump does this, right? Like, in Charlottesville, that felt like the moment before the night descended on America. Now it looks like they're stepping back, like bit by bit the right is, or at least the white supremacists are rolling back their get-togethers out of fear or whatever. Um, and like North Korea is back now, and right now that seems like that's the end of the world again. Because like they shot a missile over Japan, I have no idea what they were doing with it, but is the war back on? I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, just like I didn't think it was going to happen back on the 10th. But God, who even knows? Why did they do this? I mean, I I think it's a direct challenge to Trump. I mean, you know, he he drops this fire and fury soundbite, and this is Kim Jong Un saying bullshit, and it's you know he fires a missile over Japan just to let him know, hey, you know, I know that we're all worried about how I could level South Korea and kill ten million people in twenty five minutes, but I can hit Japan too, and it's I mean, it just it all goes back to Trump is full of shit and he's being called on it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you know, Bannon's, uh, you know, his, his leaked interview or purposeful interview, whatever story you want to believe, where I just think he hit the nail on the head where he said uh, the North Korea thing, the, the idea of a military solution with them is bullshit because show me one scenario in which immediately 10 million people in Seoul are not, you know, killed by North Korean missiles 
and then fine, I'll say that you have an idea. But until that happens, and it's not going to, they have us over the barrel. And I, you know, it's they can continue to antagonize and antagonize, knowing that uh, if we pursue their destruction, it's going to come at a very high cost. Even for a maniac like Trump, you would think a prohibitive cost. Oh, yeah. Well, he's going to look bad if that's what happens. And that's, <laughs> he doesn't want to look bad no matter what. And it would make him look weak, too. The thing about Trump is, like, his impulses are just like this, a dumb guy who wants to preen and look impressive. But those are his emotional impulses. He doesn't really have intellectual impulses. But every other impulse he has is, like, slinking away from conflict, you know, retreating away, not paying people, not giving a square deal. So he's got these two things. And, like, the thing he doesn't want to do is completely get into a war in North Korea because that would bore him. And it would take effort. And if it takes effort, Trump won't do it. So I'm interested to see what will happen when his two conflicts get together. I keep thinking he's going to go for the easy win, which is just like, you know, build a bridge or something and call it a day. That would work with most people, but it won't work. <laughs> it would like it worked with like Saudi Arabia. All Saudi Arabia had to do was to get him to, to get him to forget about Islam was invite him to one of their dances. And he was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> with North Korea, he really can't do that. Like North Korea isn't going to play this game that he's used to, like the Manhattan game. This is where you have to put your pride aside and figure out how to handle this, like, this crazy kid in the corner. And Trump has to do that, and he's really not equipped for that. So I don't know what the hell he's going to do. Obviously, he's not going to bomb him, because for the same reason he's not going to take action against Mexico, because he's, he's, it would be too much trouble to do so. I don't know what he's going to do in response, though. I mean, it'd be something like slinking away. Maybe Kelly will make him do that. But it's hard to think of what action he could take that would end well for him. You know? Yeah, I mean, yeah just, you're, you're totally right. Just thinking of like what his, you know, what his options are short of a military. I mean, I could see him maybe putting more troops in South Korea and saying, you know, hey, we're watching you, and that's that's his big old tough move. But yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to find a solution, a Trumpian solution to this problem. <laughs> no, yeah, there is none. There's no blustering someone like Kim Jong Un. There's no blustering the North Koreans. Because they will, I, I think the thing is, too, it's like always bluster ends where self-interest begins. And I genuinely think as, as much as North Korea believes that we're not going to do anything, deep in their hearts, they're willing to risk it. And, and once you are up against that, once you like are up against an enemy who's like, yeah, you know what? We're going to roll the dice here and we think we have the odds on our side. But if we get blown to smithereens, I don't really care. Uh, or like, you know, we're willing to risk getting blown to smithereens. It's like playing chicken with somebody you know will never slow the car down. Uh, <laughs> and it's like at that point, you're like, oh, fuck, they've got us. Like, there's, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> yeah, there's just no way to handle it. It, it seems like there's, with Trump, there's just no way out. Um, he's, what, what will maybe happen is that Tillerson or one of these guys is going to make a deal behind his back. Trump will have to swallow it and be like, this is a very good, it's a very good deal. It's, it's a great deal. It's like with, uh, with Afghanistan. Like, did he want to go to Afghanistan? Well, probably not because he campaigned against it. But the minimal, the minimal road of least effort was for him just to agree with his generals and be like, okay, evading Afghanistan, it's a very good thing. Let's, <laughs> let's stay there. Like, it'll, they'll, they'll, have a, they'll work out a solution on their own. They'll press it on him. And he'll be like, okay, you know, it's like, whatever. Whatever you guys want to do. He's going to McConaughey his way out of this. That's <laughs> what he does. Yeah, Jason, I, I think yeah. you're right. And, you know, now, the more I think about it, the fact that, like, Trump is so blustery and his whole fake news bullshit, you know, which is, is geared towards making sure that his supporters only believe him and him only, it, <laughs> it is kind of a good thing in this scenario in that it doesn't really matter what he does because he can tell his base anything. They can't fucking find North Korea on a map anyway. And so... You know, he, could, he couldn't lift a finger and he could tweet out just annihilated North Korea from, you know, from the face of the earth and 50% of the Republican Party would believe that North Korea is gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. They would. They'd be like, yeah, and the, fake, the fake media continues to report on them as if they're a real country. We all know. We all know they got bombed to, to non-existence. Yeah, look, exactly. at, look at this satellite image. Where are the lights? If North Korea was around. <laughs> Where are the lights? <laughs> Uh, let me let me ask you guys because I keep I keep wondering about this. Um, you know, forget the Republicans supporting Trump. The the base that supports Trump, the hardcore, the people who will never abandon their profit, no matter what. What would it take? Like, I'm, this is a serious question. Like, what would it take for those people to turn away from Trump? Would he have to? I thought about this. The answer yeah. the answer is a video of Trump molesting a kid. You I think that would do it. I honestly think that would do it, and I'm not sure what else short of that would do it. 
uh, I I have an idea. Leaked audio of him shitting directly on on them. So something like, I can't believe the, how fucking stupid those coal miners are. They think I'm gonna cha- you know save their jobs. What a bunch of fucking morons! Like some sort. Jake, of he did that. He did that during the campaign and the, in the 60 Minutes interview with the Broadway quote, where he's like, I could shoot, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Times Square, and these people wouldn't do anything. And they were like, Yeah, that's right. We're we're gonna right. be with them all the way. <laughs> Right, but that but that was I mean that was an analogy that was that was a little higher thinking. I'm talking like yeah. just full blunt like nor, like coal miners are fucking morons. Like no nuance whatsoever. Just something like that. Like personally assaulting all of them. I, I think I, I I'm gonna stick by mine. There's one crime that everybody perceives as worse than all the others because it's it is, and he'd have to do it in order to, in order to lose his base. Like, That's the only thing. I don't I'm know. With- it didn't stop the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. What That's true. I think it didn't stop Joe Pie either. I think the thing that would, the thing that would re- it would really have to come down to is like I don't. I think they would stick with him even if he converted to Islam. I think like they would, <laughs> they'd be like he's. It's different when it's him. Um, I think I think when you get right down to it, what they're there for when they're there for Trump is he trolls libs like that. At the end of the day, that's what it is. Like if it trolls libs, yep. that's good. So Trump would have to visibly convert to liberalism and start espousing liberal philot. Like he would have to pass liberal laws. He wouldn't not leftist stuff, but like visibly liberal shit. He would have to go after that full out, full bore, hardcore. That's what it would. That's the minimal thing it would take. I, like I, not, yeah, yeah. Now, that's if, what if, if, so you just put an idea in my head, Jason. Here's here's what we get. Here's how we separate Trump from his base. He watches one of those like Sarah McLaughlin videos of with with like the animals, uh, the like the, those most depressing videos, and he's crying. And we have video of him crying at one of those commercials. I think that might do it. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, what about if one day when he's sleeping, you dress up like the ghost of Ronald Reagan and start telling him that guns are bad, like whispering it in his ear. <laughs> Man. And he wakes up and starts taking guns from people. That might do it too. <laughs> if Trump took away the guns, that might that might do it too. Like that, that'd be like one of those things. Like you betrayed us. That would have to totally. be it because he like he could increase spending, like public spending, infrastructure. He was supposed to do all that stuff, and they were going to be with him, you know, during that time too. So I think the main thing, like it's like dumb culture war shit. Like the guns would do it. Like I love big gay troops. Uh, you know, like yeah, really like. I love, you know, I love liberalism. I think it's the best. It's amazing. Not that he is that aggressively conservative culture war anyway, but, like, if he... I'm, like, all the, all the dumb signifiers that people insist that, like, liberals insist that their candidates go through, if Trump did enough of those, people would run away. I think that would do it. I mean... Yep, if- I, I think so. I think, I think we've narrowed a few things. I think we've got a few options here in our, in our idealized future. Well, if you know, if Chris Christie's political career is any indication, all he needs to do is hug a black guy. Yeah, that'll do it. He'll be on the beach. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's absolutely true. <laughs> uh, let's see. So I think um, we're about up for time. You know, the summer's coming to an end. It was the first cool day here in in Atlanta. You know, it's been a wet and wild summer, especially in Washington. And I'd like us to think about what we've learned this summer from the political scene, you know, what, what has been put together during our time, these three months. You know, summer's a magical time, you know, when you meet friends at camp and you stay cool over the summer. What have you guys learned this summer? The media is worse than we thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I've learned that and that uh, whether it's climate, whether it's uh, our leadership, whether it's the mentality of too many of our citizens, whether it's like radical ideologies flourishing or whether it's just my own personal life, uh, the world is ending. (laughs) Don't trust Whitey. He will always betray you and he will always say the wrong things. That's the thing I've learned this summer and that I plan to remember always. Uh, One other thing I've learned this summer, cryptocurrency is the future. Cryptocurrency is the future, huh? I think. Oh man, get, get, get in on it, folks. Get it's, yeah, it's, it's getting on it now. Get rich, like, get rich, boys. Get some of that seriously. gold. Yeah, it's a, this is like an actual gold rush. Oh wow! Is it, but, but, is it, but one with actual gold in it. Is it doing that well? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, wow. It, I, it really is. Uh, I gotta read this piece. Bitcoin is currently trading at I think 
Well, last I checked, it was like four thousand four hundred a coin. Holy moly! Uh, it's, since, yeah, since four, this podcast, Jake, it's forty six hundred. Yeah. So it's like Holy literally shit. gone up. It goes up like two hundred dollars. I can't afford that. That's insane. You don't need to buy a whole coin. <laughs> Just how much of a coin should I buy? Whatever, as much as, you can as much as you can afford. Yeah. <laughs> As much as you can inform. Well, this has been Apocalypse Radio. We're going to soon be back as Bitcoin Radio for all your Bitcoin news and cryptocurrency fun facts. I am Jason Rode. I am Jacob Blindley. My name is Donald Trump. Hello, Mr. (laughs) President. Good to have you with us. Fuck you, Mr. President. I'm I'm Shane Ryan, folks. Come on. Okay. Come on. Good night, folks. Good night. See you guys.